Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned this philosophy called moralistic therapeutic theism. I'll just kind of like put the uh, initials up here uh, because it's, the words are too long. But where those words come from is a study that was done by Christian Smith along with researchers with a national study of youth and religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, they looked into the religious beliefs of primarily then young people. This was a number of years ago, probably about 20 years ago. Uh, but some of the DNA, some of the reflections that they found in that study uh, permeate not just young people then, but almost our culture at large. And it was kind of a peek in to the window of how kind of the modern person often thinks about religion and how we perceive God, to, who we perceive God to be. Uh, number one, I'll just kind of summarize it briefly as we did a couple of weeks ago. There's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Uh, by and large, generally speaking, while atheism has tipped up a little bit in recent years, generally it's been the same for many decades. Generally, about 2 to 3% of the people are atheists. Most people do believe that there's some kind of creator God, that he exists in heaven, that he watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The Bible teaches that, and most world religions teach that. It's kind of a vanilla, generic, God wants you to be nice, kind to other people, uh, fair to other people, treat them well. Just kind of a, a, a moralistic obligation to other people. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. If you boil it all down, God wants us to be happy. This is kind of the modern philosophy again. God wants us to have a, a positive self-perception. He wants us to be self-satisfied. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And so God is kind of distant. He's there. He's got your back if you need him, but generally he's kind of distant. Uh, we're to be kind to each other. Uh, we're supposed to feel good about ourselves, therapeutic, and deism. God is out there, uh, but he's not necessarily involved in day-to-day -day life, but he's got your back if you need him. And if you need to have a problem solved, he should be there at your beck and call to help you solve the problem. And number five kind of flows out of that. Good people go to heaven when they die. You can see through all five of those things that they're just sort of like popular notions of God, not necessarily from Scripture, but just popular perceptions of how we relate to God, how he relates to us, what he expects out of us, what we expect out of him. We, we expect to give him to give us happiness, to back us out of jams, that God's got our back. And meanwhile, we should try to be kind to others and generally respectful of those around us. As I was thinking about our series, Cliché Christianity, many of our clichés actually come from this kind of understanding about God. 
Many of our cliches relate to self-empowerment, self-affirmation. Let me just give you a couple of examples. God helps those who help themselves. That kind of reflects the moralistic, therapeutic deism understanding of God pretty well. If you do your job, if you do your part, God will step in and he'll do his part as well. He'll help you if you kind of are helping yourself. God wants me to be happy. It's kind of a therapeutic God. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be nice. He wants you to have a positive disposition about yourself. Just have faith is a cliche that we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. Just have faith to believe that what you want will come to pass. If you really believe it, have positive energy toward it, God will make it happen. And then today, we're going to look at I can do all things. You know, if I have a particular goal that I have in mind, God will jump on board with my goal and make it happen. Most of our cliches actually come out of this moralistic, therapeutic deism kind of mindset. I was actually talking to somebody after first service, and I said, I just kind of had an idea, and I don't know that we'll do this or not. I just kind of had an idea of next summer, maybe we'll do like non-cliche Christianity, and maybe we'll do cliches that you never would hear. Jesus says, deny yourself. Any like cliches around that? Yeah, take up your cross and follow me. Any, any like popular cliches on that level? Like not some, like obey Christ in all things. Like that's kind of non-cliche Christian. Like our cliches generally come from sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism, understanding of God that he's going to help us when we help ourselves. He's got our back. Any kind of goal that we have, he's going to give us strength to achieve the goal. If we just have faith, he's going to make it happen. And of course, God wants me to be happy. The cliche for this morning, I can do all things, actually is part of a verse. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. It actually is lifted from verse 13. I would encourage you to open your Bibles. And let me just say this too, and we always encourage folks to bring their Bibles to Southridge. Uh, That way, when we read a passage of Scripture, you can underline, highlight, make a note, and it's just kind of nice to be able to do that. Let me read uh, verses 10 through 13. I'll take a couple of breaks just to kind of frame some things. And then in verse 13, you'll actually hear the cliche, I can do all things that we're going to be talking about this morning. Here's what Paul says. He's writing this to the people in Philippi. That's a real life town about 2000 years ago in the time of Paul. Paul has already visited there previously. He's actually writing this letter from prison. That'll come into our time later on this morning. He's writing this letter. He's imprisoned, but he's writing this letter back to the people of Philippi just to catch up, encourage them, remind them of the truth because he can't be with them. Here's what he says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, excuse me, that at last you you renewed your concern for me. Uh, As I mentioned, Paul is writing from prison. He has some needs. Uh, There's some things that he's wrestling with, uh, but he's not been able to receive help, not because people have not wanted to help him, but it's been a challenge to get things to Paul, even as he's in prison. He says, indeed, you were concerned, like you guys have always been concerned about me, but you had no opportunity to show it. You couldn't get me anything. You couldn't help me out. But then he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, you might want to underline that word whatever, because that's going to be our first point this morning. We're going to be talking about that. Whatever the circumstances, 
Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. First thing we're going to be looking at this morning is all of our words are going to be taken right out of these verses. And the first word is whatever. I think that actually occurs two times. Paul says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Later on, uh, he doesn't really have the word whatever, although the word whatever is implied. He says the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, just little one little warning here. What I'd rather have you not do is if you leave here in this afternoon, somebody says, hey, what did they talk about this morning? You say, eh, whatever. Like, like... We are talking about whatever, but don't, well, don't express it like that, okay? I just want to say that. But what, what Paul is saying is this. Paul is saying, I can honor and glorify the Lord in whatever circumstance touches my life through Christ who gives me strength. And friends, that's true of you as well. You can honor and glorify the Lord in whatever circumstance touches your life through Christ, who gives you strength. You know, last week, John talked a little bit about the cliche, God wants me to be happy. And sort of the perception is, when we say that, is that God's primary job description, if we had to write God a job description, God's job description would be, God, your job description is basically to organize events and circumstances in my life in a way that makes it comfortable for me to do life. It's kind of God's, that's why we often get disappointed with God, right? Because God's not doing his job description very well. Like apparently God has some off days when he's not really doing and fulfilling his job description. God's job description is God, if I'm a believer in you, this is moralistic therapeutic deism, if I'm trying to help myself, if I'm pulling my weight, if I'm living rightly, if I'm treating others respectfully, if I'm you know, generally in the right spot, your job is to kind of make my life go well. And when there's the absence of that, we wonder, where is God? And why do we wonder, where is God? It's because God's not doing his job description. The only challenge is, as you read through scripture, you find often those who walk most closely with God, those who are aligning their lives with him, what you shockingly find in scripture is often their lives are actually the most challenging. Often their lives are, are the most difficult. John used Moses last week. God gave Moses a hard assignment. He had to lead the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And it was not an easy group of people to live. <clears throat> Many times Moses would throw his hands up in the air and said, God, like, I can't do this. This is harder than what I bargained for. This is too challenging. Moses did not have an easy life. <clears throat> Even though Moses was aligned with exactly what God wanted him to do, God did not make Moses to have an easy life. 
He did not make it an easy street for Moses. Think about the Apostle Paul. I already mentioned, I won't read these verses, but if you just want to flip back a couple of chapters to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Paul actually says, I am writing this letter from prison. Most likely, we believe that he was in a prison in Rome. He says, I'm writing this prison in chains. And so Paul is writing this very letter, like doing God's bidding, and Paul himself is in prison. Uh, These verses always freak me out. I don't really even like reading them so much because they're so hard. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, Paul actually gives this massive list of some stuff that he experienced in life. Remember, this is the apostle Paul. This is the guy who's like sold out for God. This is the guy who's given God like everything in his life. And you would think, man, like, I mean, he wrote a bunch of the books in the, in the New Testament. Like you would think if, if anybody's going to catch a break, if God's going to have anybody's back, it's going to be the apostle Paul. If God's going to, like, if there's anybody who's like super spiritual, aligned with God's purposes, has it going on with God, it's the apostle Paul. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul actually gives this list sort of as a comparison and a contrast to some of those around him who had easier lives. Here's what he said. And again, just like feel the weight of this. It's crazy. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been beaten and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. By the way, just a little cultural note. Uh, The Jews were allowed to uh, whip their own 40 times minus one. They weren't allowed to do it 40 times, so it would go up to 39. And so that's why he says 40 times minus one, because the the law actually said you're not allowed to beat your fellow Jewish people uh, any more than 40, or you're not allowed to do that 40 times. So they would be 39 and... Figured God was happy with that. Um, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. Just a little side here, like if God's got Paul's back, God's not doing very well. Like if God's got Paul's back in the way that we often think about it, uh, Paul's having a pretty tough time. He says, I've labored and toiled, and I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's Paul's life. I'm like, man, like, that's tough being Paul. Here's what I want you to understand. God's promise is not to give us good circumstances, but God's promise is to be with us in all circumstances. God's promise is not that, hey, I've got your back. And as long as you're aligned with me, as long as you're generally nice to those around you, as you treat others kindly, 
I'm going to make sure that it all works out for you. I'm going to make sure that you have a comfortable life. I'm going to make sure that nothing comes into your life that's too challenging or hard. That's what moralistic therapeutic deism would say. That's not the God that the Apostle Paul served. Here's what I want you to understand. God is in your whatever. You know, maybe you look at your life, and I'm just going to actually give you a moment. Whether you're watching online, whether you're here in the auditorium, Paul mentioned his whatever. Sometimes I lack provision. Sometimes I have abundant provision. Sometimes I'm in chains. Sometimes I'm free. Paul draws his circle, whatever, and that's part of his, his whatever. What's in your whatever circle this morning? You see, if you have the mindset that God's job description is primarily to make things go smoothly and easier for your life, to kind of remove obstacles, to kind of like smooth the road. If your mindset is that God's primary job description is for everything to go well and smooth, my guess is you're going to doubt whether or not God is in your whatever. Because most of our lives are messy. Most of our lives have things that we don't understand. And by the way, it's appropriate to pray that God would change circumstances. That's being honest with God. We should pray that. It's fine to pray that. But sometimes our litmus test of whether or not God is answering our prayers or whether or not God is responding to us is whether or not he changes our circumstances in a more favorable way. And because that's our understanding, we often doubt whether or not God is in our whatever. Going to give you a moment. What's in your whatever? What's in your whatever? What's in your circle that you would put? And that maybe you would be inclined to think, well, because I'm facing these challenges, it must mean I've disappointed God. Or because I'm facing these challenges, it must mean that God is absent from my life. Or because I'm dealing with these challenges, it must mean that God must not be pleased with me. What's in the circle of your whatever? God's promise is not that your circumstances would go smoothly. God's promise is that he is with you in your whatever. You know, many times I've spoken on Psalm 23, and we did that a couple of, or I guess it was last summer. And I often say when I go through Psalm 23, and it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I often remind people at funerals, God doesn't promise that there will not be valleys. God promises that he'll be in the valley with us. I'm so thankful that as a follower of Christ, I don't need to have these rose-colored glasses and look at life and say, oh, it's all wonderful and, and have this syrupy plastic smile and be kind of fake people where we just fake it and say, oh, it's all good. Scripture says, no, you don't have to. There's valleys. 
God never promises you're not going to be in the valley. He promises he'll be with you in the valley. What's your whatever? What's your valley? Where you're tempted to think that God is not present, but he actually is. Second word we're going to talk about is the word, and it's kind of a pain, learn. Don't you hate that? Uh, it's mentioned a couple of times. Uh, Philippians 1, 11, 12, what I, have, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. You can underline the word learned. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Again, that's sort of the whatever idea. I have learned, you might want to underline again, I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, just a couple things. First, when Paul says that he's learned to be content, what he's not saying is that, hey, I've learned to be emotionless. Like I've learned to detach from my feelings. I've learned to kind of distance myself from being impacted by anything. I've, I've kind of become more stoic in my personality. That is not what Paul's saying. You know how I know that? Well, because earlier in chapter four itself, Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Earlier on in verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Paul is filled with joy. And so when Paul mentions, I've learned to be content, Paul is not saying, I've learned to be detached from life. I've learned to distance myself from any kind of pain. Friends, that's dysfunction. That's not healthy. So Paul is not saying, like, I've learned to remove myself from that which is painful. We've all run into people like that. We're prone to that. We distance ourselves from the pain that we feel. It's not what Paul is saying. As you read these letters, as you read what Paul writes, Paul speaks from the heart. He's in touch with kind of the inner workings of his soul. He is not detached. He actually says, I rejoice. So this is not a disconnected, detached kind of apostle Paul. It's not what he's saying. But he's also saying, like this, this sense that I have of knowing that God is with me in all things, it is something that's learned. It doesn't come naturally. It's something that's cultivated deeply into my life. If you've been around Southridge, you know that we have often express embrace God's grace and extend God's love. And kind of behind the scenes, we often talk about three R's that support that. Like we would want every person in our congregation for these three R's to sort of be true of their life. Number one, they're relationally connected to God and one another. That's the first R. The third R is we want people to have sort of this redemptive perspective in life that they can understand what does it look like for the gospel? What does it look like for God, for his power to be at work in this particular area of life? What does it look like for the Lordship of Christ and for God's love to infiltrate this area of life. Maybe it's business, art, education, medicine, your home, your personal life, your life of pleasure, whatever it is. What does it look like for that to be impacted by the gospel of Jesus? And in the middle R is this R of being rooted. We want people to be rooted in God's truth. Why do we have that middle R? 
Same reason that Paul says he had to learn contentment. He had to dig more deeply. See, many times our perspective that God is at work is only related to whether or not he change, changes our circumstances. Paul says, no, there's a deeper understanding that I have. My roots in who God is are far deeper than how circumstances play out around me. You know, there's things that we learn. There's things that we don't have to learn. My guess is for your own personal life, for your kid, you know, like you don't have to teach your kid how to be greedy. You don't have to teach them how to be jealous. You don't, probably don't have to teach them how to be proud and arrogant. You don't teach them how to be self-centered. Those are things that we don't have to learn. They come naturally to us. But when Paul says this is something that we need to learn, it's something that we suddenly understand. This isn't natural. It's something we've got to be intentional about. In fact, this is kind of interesting. When Paul says, um, I have learned, the way that he says this and the way that this is arranged actually in how it was originally written, the word I is actually emphasized. In other words, Paul's almost trying to get us to get his implied question behind us. Paul says, I have learned to be content and sort of reading between the lines, sort of the question that he wants us to naturally ask is, well, like, have you? <laughs> Paul's saying, I have learned this, and almost sort of secretly or subversively, he's trying to put in their minds, I, he's Paul saying, I have learned this, and he's trying to get them to ask the question, Paul has learned this, I wonder if, if, if I have. I wonder if I have. There are things that we don't have to learn. In our culture, kind of our mantra is, my impulse is my identity. We don't have to learn that. It's sort of the natural path. My impulse is my identity. My impulse for possessing more. My impulse sexually. My impulse about how I view myself. My impulse is my identity. That's the mantra of our culture. It's not something we have to learn. It's just something that, now. Well, let you be you. A fine truth in yourself. Nobody has to learn that. If that's where truth is found, that finding truth in yourself comes naturally. Let the hidden you come out. It's natural. Nobody has to learn that. The message of the gospel is different. Paul is saying, I have learned that my impulse is not my identity. I'm not going to find truth in myself. I'm not going to find that circumstances around me identify who I am. Paul's saying, I, I've learned, I've needed to cultivate a different kind of mindset than what comes naturally. You might be familiar with uh, Jane Marzuski. Uh, she was on American's Got Town about a month or so ago. Uh, she performed and Simon Cowell hit the golden buzzer, which meant that she would go all the way through and skip some of the audition performances between then and the, the, the final rounds. Uh, she sang the song, It's Okay, and actually it became the top song on iTunes two days later. Uh, just an incredibly powerful presentation. Uh, literally, even Simon Cowell was in tears and sort of dumbfounded as he interacted with this woman named Jane. She goes by the stage name Nightbird, and she 
chose that stage name precisely because she had two or three visions at night of birds singing in, in the trees. Uh, I read an article that shared some of her story. Actually, on this show, she mentioned that at the very moment she was auditioning on America's Got Talent, she had cancer in her spine, uh, her, in her lungs, and in her liver. In 2017, she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, she had, was told she would have six months to live. In 2018, she was declared to be cancer-free. But a few months later, she began a second battle with cancer and was given a 2% chance of living. Uh, the battle became only more intense when her husband of five years left her and abandoned her. And then just this last summer, as she was on stage, she announced that once again, cancer was starting to ravage her body and there was cancer found throughout. Uh, amazingly enough, she's a follower of Christ. And here's what she said. She said, when it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare my thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? She goes on, I'm still reeling, drenched in sorrow. I'm still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you because God is drawing me near to him again, 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 no matter how many times. He is sent away. Friends, there's a woman who's saying, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my whatever, I'm learning that the presence of God isn't necessarily seen. And God taking away my pain. And God taking away my loneliness. And God removing my darkness. But instead, God is present in my loneliness. His light shines into my darkness. His presence comes into my pain. Instead of simply the scorecard for God being, is he removing my pain? Is he removing my loneliness? Is he removing my darkness? <clears throat> she said, the scorecard is becoming more and more. God is present in it. Friends, let me tell you something. That's not something you naturally fall into. That's something you learn. That's not something that you will drift into as a follower of Christ. That is something that along with the Apostle Paul will only be true of any of our lives if we learn it, if we cultivate it deeply if we gather together 
if we speak with one another, if we're in groups, if we pray for one another, as we read his word, as we meditate, that is, that is not something that you will naturally fall into. Impulse being identity, finding truth in yourself, you'll naturally fall into that. God being in your pain, God entering your loneliness, you will not fall into that. You need to learn that. I need to learn that. That needs to be cultivated into our beings. Lastly, strength. Whatever, learn and strength. This brings us to the last verse. It's part of the cliche. Paul says, I can do all this through or in him who gives me strength. I kind of, you might have a different translation. I actually like this translation where it says, I can do all this. Uh, most translations or many translations, especially older translations, simply thought, I can do all things. And if you just know that, you're thinking, oh, like Paul can be referring to anything. Like whatever, I can do, all, like, you know, I can be at the top of the class. I can win the race. I can get the gold medal. I can achieve the corporate uh, promotion. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is actually talking about the this of being content in every situation. Paul says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want, I can do all of this. Whatever God brings down my path, whatever is in my whatever box, whatever it is, I can do it. I can move through it. I can bring honor and glory to God. I can in Christ. Not because Paul is a powerful self-will, but through Christ who strengthens him. We can honor and glorify the Lord in whatever circumstances touch our lives through Christ who strengthens us. You know, I wonder if, Paul was thinking when he wrote this about the incident when he actually visited the town of Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, where Luke, the writer of Acts, talks about what Paul's life to Philippi was like. And when Paul entered into Philippi, there was a, a woman there who was a slave girl. And she was so influenced by the satanic forces that she had this uncanny ability to predict the future. And not by the power of God's spirit, but by the power of satanic forces that were at work in her life. And so because of that, those who owned her made vast amounts of wealth off of her wisdom that came from being connected with the forces of darkness and particularly the forces of, of Satan. Paul actually freed her from that bondage. Uh, but because... Those who earned her, owned her lost financial gain from her. Uh, Paul was, they were angry with Paul. It says in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them be, to be stripped and beaten with rods. Probably one of the times that Paul mentions in the verses I read earlier. After they had been severely flogged, not just flogged, but severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know what verse comes next? It blows my mind. And I don't think it would be written about me. He says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Like, why wasn't God's power at work in rescuing them from being flogged? Why was like, if God has all this power, why wasn't his power triumphantly on display in not letting them being thrown into prison? I don't know. You know where his power was triumphantly on display? Paul being able to sing in his prison. Paul being able to sing in his pain. That's where the power of God was triumphantly seen. Paul says, in all things, even if my back is ripped to shreds and I'm bleeding in prison, I can sing triumph because of Christ. And ask our team to come out and we're going to close the service with a song. And before we get to the song, let me just kind of remind you of how all this works. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come into your whatever. The message of the gospel is not that we have a God who's the far off creator. The message of the gospel is that Jesus was born into this world. He walked our streets. He felt our pain. I don't know what's in your whatever box, but I can tell you this. The gospel tells us Jesus is there with you. There is no pain in your life that is outside of the circle of God's presence. Whatever is in your circle, God's present in that. Secondly, there is one whatever that will never be in your circle, ever. No matter what is in your whatever circle, there's one thing that will never be in it. And that one thing is separation from the Father's love. You know why? Because of Christ. Whatever your whatever circle holds, one thing it will never hold is being separated from God. Because that was in Jesus' whatever box. He took your separation on himself so that separation from God, it'll never show up in your whatever box. And lastly, No matter how defeating your whatever seems, your whatever, because of the gospel, will not have the final word. It won't have the final word. Paul was beaten. 
He went through all kinds of stuff. But I can tell you this. None of the stuff that he went through had the final word. Because he was in Christ. And when you're in Christ, Christ gets the final word. And Christ's final word was the resurrection. Christ's final word is that all things will be made new. Christ's final word is that pain will one day be wiped away. Whatever is in your circle, God is present. One whatever will never be in your circle, and that is you'll never be separate from him. And lastly, however defeating your whatever seems, it will not have the final word. So our team's going to present the song, let it wash over you. Well, we're not going to ask you to sing with it. Just absorb the words, let them seep into your soul as we remind you of God's steadfast love. When fear is overwhelming, I can't feel it in my skin. And the bitterness of losing faith like poison on my lips. When life feels like a never-ending weight upon my soul. Oh, I need you, oh, Lord, your steadfast love. Your stand fast. 
through Christ who gives me strength. Let's close by saying that verse together. Not with sort of a glib, superficial, shallow perspective, but with the weight that whatever is in your whatever circle, that God can give you strength. In Christ, he can give you strength. Let me say it one more time, then I'm going to ask you to say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let's say it together. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let's do it again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And one last time, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for strength that comes from you. Thank you for your steadfast love. Lord, whatever is in our whatever box or whatever circle, we give to you. We can give you honor and glory through Christ who strengthens us. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Our prayer team is up here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. Have a wonderful day.